Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. It'll be a great day I've got planned for you. Guy Talk's going to be coming up in 60 seconds. And then Dr. Everett Piper will be joining me at the top of uh, the next hour, too. So it's going to be a great start to the day. Hope your day is going well. There's lots of, uh, seems like crazy news today. But uh, we know God is in control, and we're going to keep our eyes fixed upon him. The power panel today is Dr. Peter Kastner, Pastor Tom Brock, and Pastor Tom Parrish. We're giving Justin the day off. I think it's spring break for him, and he and his family are out doing spring break-like activities. So he is fully excused. So let's take 60 seconds, and we'll come back. If you have questions or issues you would like us to tackle today, you know the text line. I'll give it to you again. It's 877-933-2484. Again, 877-93-FAITH. I've got something to get us started with, but uh, your questions are so welcome. Again, 877-93-FAITH. Be right back. You're listening to Faith Radio, a media ministry of University Northwestern St. Paul. With radio signals across the upper Midwest and listeners from across the country and around the world connecting with us online and on the app, Faith Radio is here to help you learn from God's Word and grow in your faith. Find out more about us and request a free welcome packet at our website at myfaithradio.com. And thanks for listening to Faith Radio. Connecting faith to life every day. True spirituality begins with an accurate picture of God. True spirituality is built on the principle of relationship is the core. And if you want a good definition of it, it literally is loving God and loving people 24-7 from the heart. Faith Radio. That is the theme song. Guy Talk. <laughs> Seems appropriate, doesn't it? <laughs> nothing from nothing. Nothing from nothing leaves nothing. <laughs> as good as it gets there. Yeah. Welcome, gentlemen. Pastor Tom Parrish, Pastor Tom Brock, and Dr. Peter Kapsner is the power panel today. Gentlemen, welcome. Thanks. Thanks, Bill. Yeah. Good to be with you. Thank you so much. All right. Let's uh, start by mopping up from last week, only because I think uh, we got some feedback, and some was positive, some was a little negative, and I think uh, there was... Um, it's worth talking about, and I think what it comes down to is I think we always have to be careful about the tone we use. Fair? Sure. Agreed. Next. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, let me let me read uh, something I got from uh, a listener. Um, let's see. I lost it already. I was all organized, too. Um, her, her concern was that we, uh, I enjoyed Guy Talk, but I was listening to, and I need to comment, if it continues to be a time of ELCA bashing, I'll probably turn it off. 
I'm not part of that denomination, nor do I agree with some of the changes. Uh, having said that, I feel uncomfortable uh, with the talk that sounded sarcastic and not Christ-like. So there you go. Hmm. I hope you all feel scolded. You know, we, I th- <laughs> we need to watch our tone. And w- I was an ELCA Lutheran for many years. The one thing I learned from my liberal bishops is that he who keeps his cool rules the day. And sometimes people would get to the microphones at our awful conventions and, you know, they were on our side and they'd lose their cool and it really looked bad. But the the liberal bishops kept their cool and kept getting voted in. And so we need to watch our tone. Having said that, John the Baptist called the Pharisees a bunch of snakes. Mm -hmm. Jesus called the, the Pharisees whitewashed tombs. So, you know, there is a time and a place to call someone uh, a, a difficult name. Yeah. And then there was another listener that said, uh, I was in the ELCA since 1966. I became a member of the LCMS. And what would that be? Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, which is much more conservative. Okay. She became a member of that in uh, March of 2019 and said, your discussion was extremely helpful for me. Yeah. I love my ELCA friends, but they still s- scratch their heads as to why I left the church. Mm-hmm. I'll never go back. My church believes in the inerrant word of God. I am grateful. How do I receive a copy of the talk today? Thanks so much and blessings to all. Good. So it balances out. Well, if, if I can plug this, if you go to pastorstudy.org, we have whole shows about heresy in the church. They're all there for anybody to watch at any time for free. And when, you know, I the the, the thing is, there are lots of ELCA Lutherans in Minnesota and Iowa, and this is the radio station for them. <laughs> and, I, you know, it might be boring for some people, but we're trying to get the word out to make sure your offering dollars are going to good things and not evil things. Mm-hmm. So, I, well, you know, maybe I need to watch my tone more. I'm sure I do. But we still need to talk about these things. Go ahead, Peter. Go ahead, Tom. I appreciate the first comment, really do, about no sarcasm or whatever. One of the problems is this. People like Tom Brock and myself that have been in this battle for 30 years, and we go to these conventions and we go to these meetings, what the listener doesn't realize is how many times people were sarcastic toward us. Uh, I was spit on a couple of times at an ELCA convention. I had people call me names. I got nasty emails in the early days of email. Now, that doesn't justify any sarcasm on my part. But I think we have to understand that the the whole atmosphere surrounding this is not a one-sided deal. There's a lot of issues. We need to know how to address it properly. And I'd always be willing to take feedback from listeners to give me a better insight on how I can talk reasonably, but speak the truth, and truly be the John the Baptist or the Jesus to the OCA. Yeah, and I think uh, what goes along with that is been thinking about how does God uh, tend to deal with sin in the biblical text, and how do we see it manifested when Jesus is made flesh dwelling among us? How how does he deal with sin in the text? And really, the the primary pattern is one of two options in which uh, sin gets dealt with. And the primary way in which God tends to deal with sin is when people are in places that are not necessarily influential or teachers of the law, as it were, uh, God tends to woo and to woo and to call back and to invite and to whisper words, you know, to repent, some of those sorts of things. But then if people will will continue to harden their hearts to the power of sin in their life and not respond to God's call, eventually God gives them over. God lets them go. I mean, we see that as the pattern about how the church is supposed to handle sin. We see it in God uh, in, in the Romans passage 
Romans chapter one, the idea that God gives them over. So there is this letting go. It's the God of the prodigal son who mm-hmm. will just say, you you need to just go. And, and uh, that time is over. Now, where the anger does come in and where I can sympathize uh, with both of you, Toms, from last week, is there is a legitimate calling out anger that happens to the people who are leading the communities of faith in the biblical text, and specifically the Pharisees uh, or some of the other teachers of the law, because how we think about the kingdom is almost always primarily related to those who teach about the kingdom. And uh, Jesus has harsh words for the Pharisees about, you know, you, you might as well just tie a millstone around your own neck and chuck yourself into the ocean if you're leading my children astray. And if you want to teach about God's word and about life in God's kingdom, you better be terribly sobered by it because people might just actually take your ideas seriously. And so I, I can sympathize with where the two of you were last week because um, among any teachers of the law, there can be uh, an arrogance. There can be a lack of a consideration about the things that they're teaching. It can be um, divisive. It can lead people astray at the very worst. And um, Jesus didn't have a lot of patience for that, not because he just walked around being bitter and angry about stuff, but because he knew people's very lives were at stake. Mm-hmm. And the children that he loved were going to be deeply impacted by the teachers of the law, which is why he and John the Baptist had the kind of words that they did. So, and, you know, Peter, too, I, I try never to call anybody a fool because of Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus says you can go to hell for calling somebody a fool. So sure. that's, that's not in my vocabulary. But and I, nevertheless, Paul, said, Paul says to the Galatians who are banning the gospel, you foolish Galatians, would that those who are troubling you would cut themselves off, which means castrate yeah. themselves, you know, given the um, uh, circumcision thing going on there. And so there is a time and a place. Jesus uh, used firm language. Uh, James calls his, his listeners fools at one point. So it's not like we can never use the really rough language, but I think we need to be kind of careful. <laughs> well, I think so, too. And it needs to be tempered with the humility that— um, there's certainly going to be things about the kingdom. I don't care how many years I've studied or how many fancy letters I have after my name, blah, blah, blah. Uh, I'm very mindful that there's all kinds of things about God's kingdom that I just simply don't know. And I, I don't even sometimes know that I don't know what mm-hmm. those things might be. And so with my students, hopefully in the classroom, there's a significant degree of humility happening. Um, but while still trying to faithfully communicate the truths of God's kingdom and finding the tension between those, and when you have a situation in any religious tradition, whether it's more liberal or more conservative, because it can happen in both places, where somebody becomes overly dogmatic mm-hmm. and kind of oppressive about stuff, mm-hmm. I mean, those are the places from which I just run. And I think, oh, dear, you're trying to make a disciple of yourself as opposed to inviting people to follow Jesus. Yeah. Well, I wanted yeah, to... Good word, Peter. Yeah, I wanted to start by just uh, saying I think it's important that we check our tone uh, when we get into discussions and dialogue. And um, uh, also stand for biblical truth. Um, so I had a listener uh, named Karen say, I appreciate the discussion. And another listener named Greg saying, I am done with God talk. And I said, why? And I don't, didn't get an answer. So anyway, uh, we're just doing our best. Uh, we'll take a little break. We'll be right back. Who is that? Thank you. 
All right, welcome back to Guy Talk. Minus one listener. <laughs> We're glad that the power panel is in place. Pastor Tom Parrish, Pastor Tom Brock, Dr. Peter Kapster. Always glad to be with you guys. Um, listener says, I appreciate Peter Kapsner, of course. Don't we all? Uh, another uh, listener just jumped in uh, and said, I didn't think the men sounded critical last week. Thank you, all in upper caps, for telling us what is going on in the ELCA. So many don't know. Where can I find last week's podcast? So uh, another listener um, sent in an email earlier in the day, and she was troubled by this. And I, I think I sent it on to you, uh, gentlemen, as a heads up. But she said, um, uh, in the last two weeks, I've been at two Lutheran funerals, one ELCA and one Missouri Synod. In the beginning of the funeral service, the pastor starts out saying, on the day of your baptism, the pastor made the sign of the cross on your brow and said, child of God, you have been sealed by the power of the Holy Spirit and marked with the cross of Christ forever. As a baptized child of God, you have claimed his place in God's eternal kingdom. She said, am I missing something? But this doesn't sit very well in my heart. This sounds like they get heaven as an infant and nothing more they need to do in their life. No John 14:6. So let's talk about repentance. Let's talk about how important it is to come to a place mm-hmm. of repentance in your life where you have your first birth and then your second birth. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I'm a Lutheran pastor, and I share this woman's concern. I had a woman come up to me once. Esther Brock, my uncle, was an atheist, godless man, but at his funeral, the priest put him in heaven because he was baptized as a baby. Mm-hmm. Is that right, Pastor Brock? And I said, no, that's not right. Mm-hmm. You know, Jesus said, he who endures to the end will be saved. And I, I will admit, I mean, I I believe in baptism, that it's more than symbolic. God does wonderful things in our baptism. But the Lutheran Church also teaches you need to confirm your faith to the end to be saved. Hitler was baptized. Mussolini was baptized. We don't think they made it. Mm-hmm. And, and so there, it, we're, it, it, on the other hand, when this person says, well, this, you know, there's don't you have to do something? Well, in one sense, we can't do anything to be saved. We have to receive it as a child. Mm-hmm. It's by grace alone. But it's, the Bible is also insistent, he who endures to the end will be saved. Mm. I think one of the troubles uh, with the whole Lutheran approach and so many Protestants is we've kept doing the same thing over and over for generations without thinking it through or explaining it thoroughly. I remember I heard a story early in my ministry where a young bride Uh, And her husband, he brought home a beautiful ham, and he wanted her to cook it for him. And she took the ham, and she cut three inches off the end of the ham, put it in the pan, put it in the oven, threw the rest away. And he shook his head, why'd you do that? She goes, I don't know. My mom always did it. They go over and see her mom. Why'd you do that, Mom? Well, I don't know. Grandma always did it. They called Grandma. Why'd you do it? Because they only had a nine-inch pan, and it was 12 inches long. (laughs) In other words, we pick up traditions, and we do things without fully understanding the context. Baptism is part of a covenant, just like circumcision in the Old Testament was part of a covenant. The Bible's insistent, you did not choose me, said Jesus, but I chose you and called you to go bear fruit. What we miss oftentimes as Lutherans is not so much that uh, the baptism is the problem. We don't talk about a personal response to Jesus. We don't talk about the fact that now it becomes a daily passion to serve him, to love him. And you think about the Old Testament prophets. What do they always complain about? They told the children of Israel, you were circumcised on the eighth day. God claimed you as his own, but you have not honored the covenant. Repent and return to the Lord. So it is that daily repentance, that daily renewal to Jesus. And I agree with Tom. 
you know, I have a great problem with this, the way it's taught and the way it's done, and it's a misunderstanding. Peter? Yeah, and I think, too, um, when you add to that as well, that uh, um, our primary question so often is, what must I do to get into heaven when I die? And, and I think that's a really understandable question, but I'm not even sure that's always the question or even the primary question of the biblical text. It is a, it, it's a sort of an interpretation of being saved, meaning that I get heaven when I die. And yet what the Bible seems to try to be communicating is how do we deal with uh, the active power of sin in our lives that is so deeply enslaving us, uh, enslaving us and about which we can really do nothing. So to be saved means how do we how are we broken free from the active power of sin in our lives? Because we can't do it on our own. And so I would suggest that when we sort of fall into these ideas of the Christian faith, that to be a Christian means that I did some sort of ritual to make sure that I can get into heaven when I die, maybe leading us down a pathway that, that ends up in confusing places like what the listener suggested. It, you know, whether it's getting baptized as an infant that gets you into heaven when you die, or praying a sinner's prayer at a youth group that gets you mm-hmm. into heaven when you die, um, I think we get confused because of that. And and so just going back briefly, Jesus didn't say that, you know, I've come to make sure that you get positioned rightly for heaven. He, he says that I've come, that you would have life, and that you'd have it abundantly overflowing in your life, which is sort of this idea of being broken power from the from the power of sin and, and living a different kind of life. And C.S. Lewis picks up on that theme, where when he thinks about sin and, and death and hell and heaven and stuff, he says, you know, all day long, we are helping one another towards one of two destinations where either the active power of sin continues to disfigure us or the life of God continues to set us apart and make us holy. So much so that when you get to the other side, uh, you will either be a creature that will be looking like an everlasting horror or sort of a creature of profound beauty. And so I say all that, Bill, just to sort of wrap it all up, not to open up a huge theological can of worms here. Thank you. But the, but the idea of of heaven when we die, heaven is simply our home. We're living in a very disoriented world in a place that isn't our home. And so I, when we think about heaven, it's where we finally get to put the bags of our journey down. That that idea, when you get closer to home after being out uh, abroad for a little while and you're disoriented by all of that and you get closer to home and closer to home, you finally step across the threshold and you say, ah, I'm home. And you set your bags down and now now you can finally rest. And so... I think we need to think a lot more about what it means to be following Jesus, because that was his invitation. And in that following, sin is increasingly being broken in our life until we're finally set free when we truly arrive home. But the idea that I can do a ritual that positions me properly for heaven, that whole thing breaks down pretty quickly. And you know, Peter, here's what I like to say. And I'm a Lutheran. The Lutheran heresy is, hey, I got baptized. I'm saved. Leave me alone. The, right. ba- the Baptist heresy is, hey, I prayed the prayer, asked Jesus into my heart, leave me alone. The right. truth is, Jesus said, he who endures to the end will be saved. That's the answer to all this. Well, I think all of us want, we talk about heaven. We talk about the second coming, which I'm all for. Don't get me wrong. I really am. Mm-hmm. But we keep thinking of it as a future event. Rather, Jesus, when he dealt with the Jews of his day, what were they looking for? They were looking for the kingdom of God to break in to their world and defeat the Romans and put a king like like David back on the throne. What did Jesus say? He said, the kingdom of God is not out there. The kingdom of God is within you. And it is in the relationship with the living Lord Jesus Christ, the God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, that we have the kingdom now. Because Jesus said, the moment you believe, you have passed from death to life. It starts right. the moment you believe. The kingdom is now, not just in the future. Well said. 
another listener jumped in. Many teachers, many Christian teachers pose endless questions with few, if any, clear answers. That's why I appreciate Pastor Tom Brock's clear and uncompromising teaching. Well, thanks, Mom. Yeah, that'd probably be your mom. (laughs) (laughs) And my wingman, Terry, said to cover for the listener who stopped tuning into the show, I went and turned on another radio, and I'm now broadcasting Guy Talk in two rooms of my house. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Dad. (laughs) Uh, Another uh, guest, Madison, said, great show. We need to have this discussion more because Jesus was the one who initiated it. And the question is, how do you get Christ's life when you feel like you don't have it? And how do you feel like you're doing things right in order to receive it? Does ritual seem to help our feeling of security, but we miss the piece to the puzzle, which is having Christ himself? Yeah. I think some rituals are great. I love taking communion often. Mm-hmm. You can call it a ritual, but Jesus said to do it, you mm-hmm. know. And so some nothing's wrong with ritual. As long as it doesn't, uh, you know, as if, if it's separated from a living faith, then it's a dead work. Mm-hmm. But not if it's connected with a living faith. Well, here's the problem. People are like yo-yos. We're kind of up and down. We can be real down in the morning, real up in the afternoon, really high on Jesus tomorrow, but kind of down on it on Friday, the whole thing. Rituals are the constant. And although we don't want to live for the rituals, it's kind of like I try to teach in premarital counseling. If you've been married as long as I have, you know that the feelings of love are not always what they were the day you got married. Instead, you have to choose to love out of honor to Jesus and then honor to your spouse and do the things that accompany love to make that relationship healthy and then feelings catch up with it. I think the feelings become, you know, get in the way too often. What we need is the the process where we keep doing it consistently so that we keep ourselves on track and the Holy Spirit works through that to bring the emotions back into place. Because I don't know about you guys, but I'm up and down. I wish I could say I was constant in my emotions toward Jesus, toward my wife, toward my kids, toward life itself. But I'm not. But I depend upon doing it consistently, consistently saying, you are my Lord and I'll follow you. And you know, yeah, and I think that's where the where sort of ritual can come into, yeah. where as long as ritual is not something that's just an empty habit, but... When we're when we're intentionally trying to create space to interact with the living God, uh, then ritual can be a profound place of yep. doing just that. Where we're setting it aside with intention, whether it's a quiet time in the morning, whether it's taking communion on a Sunday, whatever the ritual might be. Ritual, unfortunately, gets kind of a bad rap at times because it can seem empty and hollow. But if we're doing it simply saying, "Hey, we're setting aside intentional space to interact with God," then it's a beautiful process in which God's life, at least for me, I find how easily I seem to lose it and how much it seems to come back in the midst of ritual like that. All right, we'll take a little I break. The, oh, go ahead, Tom. I've got to take a break I love here. the quote from former Dallas coach Tom Landry. He said his role as Dallas football coach was to get these men to do things they didn't want to do so they could become everything they want to be. And I think oftentimes going through the process, the rituals, the reading of Scripture and praying, gets us to where we want to be when we don't feel like it. I love it. All right, we'll take a little break. If you have a question or something you'd like us to chew on, or a response, let us know what it is. 877-93-FAITH. Be right back.
All right, we are back. Guy Talk is happening, getting some nice response from listeners who want more information. So, guys, listen up. Here's a question. Um, what is meant by, but the one who perseveres to the end will be saved? And the question is, does he feel that if we don't endure or persevere, we can lose our salvation? I've never really heard, had this verse explained adequately. Is, oh, Jesus is talking in Matthew about the end of time and about how rough it's going to get. And then he says, and I can't find it, is it Matthew 24 or 25? He who endures to the end will be saved. Meaning, if you fall away and re- renounce Christ, uh, you're not going to be saved. So, I mean, I'm going to get, uh, quickly, the Calvinist position is, once saved, always saved. If you truly accept Christ, you're going to endure to the end. You began a good work and you will bring it to completion. But And and that's what the Calvinists believe. Lutherans tend to believe you can lose it. Mm-hmm. But what I... I can ha- I can somewhat sympathize with once saved, always saved, as long as that person endures to the end. If somebody says, hey, I'm saved, I prayed the prayer 30 years ago, and they're not walking with the Lord at all, you cannot rely on a prayer that you prayed, because Jesus said you have to endure to the end. So can you lose it? That's a hard question. I'm not even sure what I totally believe about that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that is, that's definitely a tricky one, Tom. You're yeah. right, because if, if you're a Calvinist, you would believe that God was the author of your salvation to begin with. There's nothing that you did. Even a decision that you seemingly made was uh, not actually your decision. It was God prompting you to make that decision. And then therefore, God will also prompt you to endure until the end. And so the people for whom truly God made that decision for are also those who will endure to the end. And if they fall away, well, they were never actually part of God's decision-making to begin with. And so it's an interesting view that I can understand on some level because people want to preserve God's sovereignty in its entirety. But the biblical witness seems to be along the lines of at least some sort of freedom and free choice and people that do fall away. And certainly the entire book of Hebrews was written to a community of people who were indeed walking away from their faith because they were experiencing intense persecution, people dying, they didn't know what to do with it. And so the whole letter is encouraging them to stay with it until the end. And so when we talk about persevering to the end, it is that, you know what, despite the travails in this world and despite the trouble in this world and despite the persecution, I'm going to continue to follow Jesus, believing that I'm part of a different kind of kingdom, that of course I'm going to be in trouble in this world, but I am going to persevere into the end. And to be saved at that moment is simply to have the power of salvation that's already been present be made in its fullness when you come to the other side. And and so that would be my best understanding of that. My my concern is when no. somebody says, you know, my, my daughter is living with her boyfriend, and I know that's wrong, but I'm so glad I know she's saved because 10 years ago she accepted Christ. Right. And I would have to quote, if if her daughter was in my office, I would quote 1 Corinthians chapter 6, don't be deceived, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, adulterers, etc., will inherit the kingdom of God. And so if someone's, li- I mean, we all sin, and there's forgiveness of sins when we repent, but if someone is living in hard-hearted, impenitent sin, you cannot rely on the fact that you were baptized or the fact that you, quote, prayed the prayer and asked Jesus in your heart for your salvation. Uh, it, it just, First uh, Corinthians 6, do not be deceived. Yeah, and, you know, you look at St. Paul, and I've always struggled between these two uh, with my Baptist friends, my Calvinist friends, and just those in between, which I am. But what it comes down to, Paul in Romans talks about salvation, uh, at least for part of Romans, in terms of a uh, judiciary approach. It is, it is a legal judgment that we have been declared righteous 
by faith in Jesus Christ. So it's more like a contract in people's thinking. And I think those that want to cling to the once saved, always saved, and I appreciate them, like the concept of the contract. I made the decision on July 4th, 1984, and no matter what I do, I'm going to heaven. That's one approach. The other approach is, you know, the rest of so much of the Bible and Jesus, it's a living relationship. I don't have a contract with Jesus. He doesn't have a contract with me. He is a living Lord to whom I am infatuated with, to whom I want to pursue and be with to the very end. And my goal, guys, is simply this. When I stand on the day of judgment before God the Father, I don't want a contract in my hand. I want the hand of Jesus holding on to me because I want that relationship. And so when I look at it that way, uh, I know I'll endure to the end because enduring to the end is simply pursuing Jesus until my last breath. And I think this is an issue where solid, sincere Christians can disagree. I have, I, I, like you, Tom, I have Christian friends who believe you can lose your salvation and Christian friends who believe you can't. There's enough in Scripture that is confusing about this that makes me hold this one a little bit with tension, saying, well, some of, now I know in part, then I shall understand fully, 1 Corinthians 13. And not to think that you're not a believer or you've, you've blatantly uh, ignored certain verses if you hold to either view. It's Peter. interesting. My son... Oh, yeah. Oh, go, go ahead. ahead. Go ahead, Tom. My son lives in Texas. He's a businessman down there. And he called me a while back, and he said, Dad, i got to tell you something I discovered after living in Texas for several years. I said, what is that, Tim? He said, everybody down here is born again. I said, what are you talking about? He said, everybody in Texas is born again. I explained. I said, explain it to me. He said, Dad, everybody I meet has gone forward at a crusade, at a church service, some kind of an event, and received Jesus. However, Dad, what I'm seeing is they still run around on their wife. They still kick their dog. They don't believe in much in anything, and they want to live their life the way they please and make all their own choices. And he said, where do we get to the point where we quit talking about, you know, I've got a contract or I have made that decision without talking about I've made that decision again today and today and tomorrow and next week until the end of time? Because it's the relationship that matters more than anything else. And that's what I'd urge people to do. You know, don't worry about you were saved back on August 4th or whatever, make sure that you're right with Jesus today. Keep walking with him, whether you feel like it or not. Plead again, you are my Lord and Savior. I trust in you alone. Yep. What, what are you trusting in? John the Baptist said to the Pharisees, do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. God can from these stones raise up children to Abraham. I would, I would modern day say it this way. Do not say to yourself, I was baptized or I prayed the prayer. God can from these stones raise up people that pray to prayer. But are you trusting in Christ for your salvation? Yep. And I think what comes up from that, you guys, is that then what becomes the point, right, of baptism and praying the prayer if we're just going to say, hey, at the end of the day, you know, it's about a life. And I think that gets us closer to the heart of what Jesus's invitation was that we've been kind of weaving in and out of on this show is that if we are standing in that first century context, what what did he say to all of these followers, both the fishermen that were failing out there in the waters, to the guy sitting under the tree, to everybody who came around? He, he said, "Follow me." Mm-hmm. To, to be a Christian, yes. it doesn't. We we unfortunately I think have come to believe that to be a Christian means that we've done some sort of ritual to get us positioned properly for heaven. But to be a Christian in the original language simply means to be answering the question of who you are following in this life. And to be a Christian is to be a follower of Jesus. And that doesn't mean we're perfect. That doesn't mean it's easy. That doesn't mean we don't stumble and fail. But I, th- I think I can say, even when I'm at my worst and in my darkest or my marriage has been struggling in all of the different seasons of my life, that 
there was there was a piece of me that still wanted to follow that that as divided as my heart can be, I recognize something in that that I was still going to follow. And you read those first early disciples; those guys were disasters, you know. And and yet they continued <laughs> to follow, and they continued to follow. And God's life and His power and and who God is increasingly was manifest in their lives. This is this is the long slow walk of obedience that we're signing up for. And so I would suggest in our youth groups and with our kids and with our families, we have to be putting the, the question in front of people, are you willing to follow Jesus? And are you willing to to um, count the cost of that mm-hmm. and to pick up your cross? And all of this language is actually the invitation. And as you do so, you, you're running that race, you're throwing off the sin that, that entangles us. All of that kind of language makes much more sense in the biblical text as opposed to how do I get into heaven when I die? The real question is, is who are you following? Well, that's, you know, what you really said, Peter, is kind of hitting the nail on the head. I'd, I'd yell bingo if I played bingo. Or, he scored, like in hockey, because <laughs> you've hit the nail on the head. This is what it's about, the relationship with Jesus, knowing him, walking with him, more than anything else. You get that right, you're on the right path. Good job. And having said all this, and I agree with everything here, that doesn't mean baptism is unimportant. It's all over no, the New Testament. No. It's all over the New Testament. Um, It's a little harder to say that praying the prayer is all over the New Testament because it isn't. Um, But we're not talking against uh, baptism because the Bible requires it of Christians. But it's not something you lean upon and smile while you go off to sin. Right. Right. If I can just throw one more piece of the puzzle into this. It's in, in the early church when they practiced baptism. They um, they did it a couple of times a year, and the entire night before the baptism ritual and, and Easter morning, the person that was going to be baptized would face towards the the West, which was seen as the place of darkness and the setting of the sun, and they would literally renounce the works of Satan in their lives, mm-hmm. that they did not want to follow the prince of this world any longer. And when the sun rose towards the East, all of the people who were going to be baptized then would run down into the waters, and they would be baptized so that they would experience freedom from that very power of sin in their lives. They would repent and the remission of sins and all of that. And they came yep. up out of the waters, and the bishops of the church would then anoint their heads with oil and seal them with the Spirit and say, you're no longer under the control of sin in your life. You're under control of the Spirit. And then they would go right to the communion table and celebrate the beautiful victory of the communion of the saints. And I, I just think there's something really profound in all of that that I think has gotten lost in some of our traditions. And sort of what's called theological accretion, where we accrete different ideas one on top of the other, and pretty soon we get confused pretty quickly about who this Jesus actually is. Did you read that off a whiteboard, or was that in your head? <laughs> that one well, <laughs> that one is in my head only because I had to study that one, and I was absolutely mesmerized, Bill. I, I, remember, that, that I, just, is beautiful. I was like, I can't believe. It was so beautiful as I oh, began to read it, through some of this stuff. It's just gorgeous what you just said. Just beautiful. Mm-hmm. All of you are amazing contributions. All right, uh, the, the listener that said he's done with guy talk said this. In addition, bashing of one group by another group is a huge problem when reaching out to non-believers. The word I have been told is hypocrite. If we, if we can only criticize, we need to get the log out of our own eye. And I don't know if, were we bashing another group? I, I, how can I, as a Lutheran pastor who was in the ELCA for many years, tell somebody who's giving their money in the plate, and some of that money can pay for abortion for any reason in the ELCA healthcare plan. Am I not to talk about that? When the ELCA has practicing homosexual and transgender people now leading churches as pastors, am I not supposed to speak against that? 
I'm sorry. I got to. I, I can't sleep at night if I don't. Mm-hmm. One of the, uh, I think it's the Northeast Senate or one of the Senates of the OCA memorialized the National Convention. And I don't know where it's at at this point. But what they were asking was this, that when we do interfaith discussions, such as with Muslims, that from this moment forward, we'll no longer bring up the name of Jesus because it's offensive to the Muslims. Now, I'm not bashing when I say that's heresy. That is so wrong, and it is such a denial of the truth of the gospel. Where, I, where I'm bashing is when I have no solutions. And the solution is to repent, to return to the Word of God, and to look what Jesus really says about himself and the sort of the Bible. Yeah. Was, was, John, and I, and I think, was John the Baptist bashing? Was the Apostle Paul, when he wrote the book of Galatians, was he bashing? He, they were clearly pointing out where people need to repent. I don't think that's bashing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't think so either. I think I think the hard part, so if we can take it out of a very understandably charged issue like same-sex relationships and the LGBTQ conversations that are understandably really confusing, really painful for a whole lot of people, right? If we just if we just go with the idea, say that that's not the topic and and pretend it's a different topic and say, let's say somebody is teaching a whole host of people, hundreds if not thousands of people, something that would be terribly destructive in their lives. Like let's say a religious tradition um, is advocating for child sacrifice, just to take it to a, a horrible place here. Are, are you going to say, hey, live and let live, take the log? No, of course not. You're going to come and try to prevent uh, people from dying uh, over and over and over again. And so I think we have to have a lot of conversations about what the approach has been around sexuality, and the church has been terribly hypocritical on a number of levels with that because of its own sexual sin, whether it's related to same-sex relationships or or pornography, or a divorce, and sexual failings, all of that, I totally understand we need to take the heat out of that conversation because there's been a lot of hypocrisy. But I think what we can't lose is that we have to be faithful teachers of that which is complete and whole and shalom and right and beautiful in God's kingdom. And you can't have it both ways. You can't advocate for both same-sex relationships and traditional marriage because they are, it's a binary choice. And the question becomes, what do we choose as that being shalom in God's kingdom, and how do we approach it? So, again, I guess just to wrap that up, if we take it out of the heated conversation, we do have to pay attention to that which is consistent with his kingdom and advocate for those things. All right, let me take a quick I break. Do. Oh, Tom, I need, to, I need to take a pause here. We'll be right back with more guy talk. Yep, back in 90 seconds. Lots of response from listeners. Thank you for letting us know how you feel. Getting a lot of nice praise. So that feels kind of nice on a day like this. Michelle said, gentlemen, I listened to the show last week and I was highly educated. Thank you. A faithful fan of all of you. Isn't that nice? Yes. Good work. It goes on and on. Mike said, speaking the truth in love is what I'm hearing. Well done. Thanks, Mike. (laughs) And, you know, can I say this in defense of our Captain Bill Arnold? You know what's you leave, good. You, what's, you leave me out of it. <laughs> what's, what's, what, what's, what's good about this show? Partial observer. No, no, serious. What's good about this show? How often you turn on the radio and hear an in-depth discussion of "Once Saved, Always Saved," or a few weeks ago, women's ordination, or a few, few weeks before that, predestination versus free. Mm-hmm. I mean, what's good about the show? We're, uh, and and thank you, Bill and and KTIS for letting us do this. We're handling topics that 
need to be talked about. And so often you turn on some some spiritual radio and it's all fluff, you know. So God bless you, Bill right. Arnold. Thank you so much. Thank I agree. You. Here's here's a challenge I have for the listener that talked about not listening to guy talk. It's fine if you don't want to listen, but do yourself a favor. Pick up a New Testament with the red letter edition. I'm not big on the red letter, but those are all the words of Jesus. And begin to read through that. And I think you'll quickly discover that the Jesus that is talked about today, he's a loving shepherd, he's gentle, he's kind, etc., which he is, is in contrast to there was a very harsh Jesus and a very demanding Jesus and a Jesus who says, you don't come to me, you're going to be lost for eternity. And it is the Jesus of the Bible that I'm interested in, not the Jesus that I make up because I don't like some of the things he says. So mm-hmm. I challenge the, the listener to do that and then get back to me or back to the show and tell me what you thought about that. Somebody told me that they, I think this was at a funeral, John fourteen six. the pastor quotes, I'm the way and the truth and the life. And she went up afterwards, was it, and said, well, pastor, you left off the part, no one comes to the Father but by me. And the pastor said, yeah, I just didn't want to offend people. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah. But we have to be wise and gentle and loving and stand for truth when we talk to people about our hope in Christ. Yep. Um, so I think this is a good opportunity to, to hear uh, difficult things and and, and solid biblical uh, teaching. I think tone's important, though. Um, another w- listener just said, I love Guy Talk. You're right. These things need to be discussed. I'd love to be involved in regular roundtable discussions on topics of the day. There you go. So hopefully we're good modeling. Stuff. Yeah, I would too. Yeah, modeling some good yeah, stuff. Yeah, and you've heard me say bef- uh, before, Bill, too, that you know we've had regularly had a chance to survey my young kids that are coming out of the best and the brightest sort of evangelical churches of the Midwest, typically speaking, and these are all the questions that they have, and they feel like they so often don't have an opportunity to really get into them as depth as they might, and we can end up paralyzed uh, in our following Jesus when we have some thoughts that really understandably hang us up and 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 stick us a bit in where we are on the journey and and I think tone so much relates to an understanding that on some level we are all hypocrites in the sense that my interior world of my passions and my values and my dispositions and my attitudes and all of those things aren't always entirely in alignment, obviously, with God's kingdom. Nobody's are. And if we pretend it, if we're out there always pretending that we've got it all together, that's the kind of tone that then leads to being harsh critics of other people and all of that. But when you can walk in this stuff in humility and say, hey, look, I don't have it together either, and we're taking our Mm -hmm. best shot because Mm -hmm. we all care deeply about God's kingdom, that's where we can talk about these things in a way that I think is terribly productive and helpful. All right, here's another question from a listener. What is the full meaning of bringing every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, and what does the obedience of Christ mean as demonstrated by him? I'm glad I asked the questions. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I thought you were going to tell us the answer, Bill. No, I just asked the questions. <laughs> some, there are some days, especially in the morning, when I battle evil thoughts, kind of battle like crazy, and all I can do is just keep battling them, turn on the scriptures and listen to the scriptures, whatever. Uh, the fact that we are to ca- take every thought captive, that shows that there are some evil thoughts still in us that we got to take captive. Mm-hmm. Now, sometimes I, I had somebody say that, you know, Pastor Brock, I have these su- such horrible thoughts, especially when I'm praying 
and it makes me think I'm not a Christian. And I said, no, the devil's just attacking you while you're praying. Having evil, Jesus had evil thoughts when he was being tempted by the devil in the wilderness. You know, turn the rocks into bread, do this stuff. The fact that you have an evil thought planted in your head by the devil is not a sin. It's acting on it. We, we, all, we will be tempted till the day we die. The temptation isn't the sin. Acting on it is the sin. So if somebody is battling evil thoughts, well, God bless you. I think that's a, an evidence that you're a believer. If you're not battling them, that's when you got to worry. Well, I don't think the problem here is is uh, we want to talk about how do I do the captive part, where I think the Bible is saying don't be passive about the devil's attacks. Don't be passive about your own faulty thinking. Don't be passive about those kind of things. And I remember, and, and I'm not advocating this, but I was in junior high or a freshman in high school. Every day I had a kid come by my locker and shove me. And, and give me a hard time. And I was just trying to ignore him. And everybody said, just ignore him. It'll go away. Well, it didn't go away. It actually got worse. And I remember my father finally saying to me, now remember, this is in the 60s, so don't repeat this. He said, next time he pushes you, you punch him in the nose. Now, that sounds really bad, but here's the point. That's exactly what I did. And he became one of my good friends throughout the rest of my life until he died. The point was, we can't be passive in light of the bad thoughts we have of the challenges we have, of the fears we have, and harbor them inside as though we don't know what to do with them, but keep bringing them back to Jesus and bring them back to other Christians like we're doing here to talk about it and get insight. But, Tom, did, yeah, that, guy, did that guy die because you punched him in the nose, Tom? No, 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 no. He had a better-looking face after <laughs> I got done. I'm kidding. Okay. No, and I, I would just add alongside of all of that, too, that that passage that the listener is asking about and coming from Second Corinthians 10, it, it is in the context a bit of the, uh, of the contrast of allowing your thoughts to be captive by the arguments and the thinking and the way the world works versus the way that God's kingdom works. And so, yes, it can have to do with sort of the idea that I didn't like the thought that I just had and I don't want to have that thought ever again, but, but I think it's more along the lines of saying— hey, I, I recognize that there's all kinds of voices that are pulling me to live according to their values and standards and ideas in this world, and and they'll, they'll lead to my destruction. For example, if I think that my career and uh, and succeeding in my career is going to bring me life, hope, and happiness and stuff, that, that's a path of destruction, as opposed yes. to taking every thought captive towards Christ is the idea of saying, I want to consistently align myself with him and his kingdom versus the kingdoms of this world. And so I am going to have some rubbish thoughts in the midst of all of that that cross my mind that need to be dealt with. But I think this is much more about ask, answering the question, which master do you serve? Are you serving the kingdoms and the arguments of this world with your thought life, or are you serving uh, the king of the only eternal kingdom? Yeah. All right. We've got three minutes left, so I'm going to throw this one out. My kids asked me if worrying is a sin. Thoughts? Yup. Uh, <laughs> I, I, mean, I mean, I would just suggest this, and and not we. I think sometimes we think sin is like, oh, I'm just this horrible, horrible person, as opposed to this. We we do have these sinful things in our lives that create horrible realities in us. But I think worry is just the idea that I am attending to things in this world as my source of life, as opposed to attending to the King. And and when we sin, we're just missing the mark. The mark is the King, and so worry is a sin just in the sense that I am probably attending to stuff in this world as opposed to the idea that, hey, look, I, I'm going to tether myself to Jesus come what may. Uh, I worry all the time, and that is always an invitation for me to remember who my actual king is. Yeah, worry is always going to come up within us. We cannot defeat sure. the, the first moment that worry comes up. The issue is how long are we going to let worry control us? And I think of Philippians 4, 
Paul is very straightforward and says, you know, have no anxiety among you, you know, and uh, but by, you know, prayer, supplication, thanksgiving, present your request to God. The quicker we go to the Lord with our worry and start talking to him about it, even if it goes on for days and days and weeks and weeks, we keep talking to him about it. And he starts giving us a new understanding of how to deal with this. Worry is like a rocking chair. It'll give you something to do, but it won't get you anywhere. Mm. <laughs> How like many of those do you have, Tom? You know, I, when you preach for <laughs> He's got a 30 plus years, you get a gazillion He's of them. a million. <laughs> Sounds like that's right out of Reader's Digest. It's right out of my <laughs> illustration book. It's a fortune yeah. cookie. Gentlemen, thank you. I got a nice uh, comment from Justin. He said, uh, not our Justin, but another Justin. Guy talk is, to me, what Christian unity looks like bunch of guys sitting down and talk and talking about things that they don't necessarily all agree on in a manner that is loving and kind towards one another while trying to speak the truth. Hmm. Thanks, Mom. Again. <laughs> Was that my mom again? Probably. <laughs> all right, that wraps up. Gentlemen, thank you so much for uh, being part of the show today. Always nice to uh, Lots of fun. have thank you, you on. Thank you, Bill. Yeah. Yep. Ton of fun with you guys. Yeah, I agree. Uh, thanks to Dr. Peter Kaffner, Pastor Tom Brock, and Pastor Tom Parrish. That wraps up Guy Talk. We're going to take a little break. Hour two is just ahead. Dr. Everett Piper is going to be joining me at the top of the hour. And then economist uh, Dr. Ann Rathbone Bradley. Be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.